Let's stand one more time uh, as we honor the word of the Lord uh, in, our, in our midst and um, read his sacred word. I want to always communicate a very high view of the word of God, that the scripture, the word of God, always has preeminence in our church. And uh, that's why we stand. We stand in honor of God's word because we're not reading the newspaper. We are reading a, a book that is life and death. We have a, we're reading a book that has the words of eternity, that has the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the words of, this is the word of God. And uh, we cannot wish that we could fly to honor the word of God. But since none of you guys are going to do that, right, you might as well just stand with me and uh, let's read God's word together. We're looking at verses 7 through 11. This is what the word of the Lord says. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For we, or for even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, again, we ask your help. We pray your blessing now over this congregation. We know that you are a God that loves to dwell in the midst of his people. Lord, that's why you called out Abraham. You called him out, Lord. Out of his tent, under your tent, the stars above. To lift up his eyes and to wonder and stare in wonder and amazement at our great covenant God. And the fact that you would multiply his descendants, who through faith we are. And we're so grateful that you have decided not only to create us, but also to dwell with us. And Lord, let our hearts be the heart of Moses, who said, Lord, if you don't go with us, don't take us up from this place. And so, Lord, with the same heart, we desire for you to be in our midst, to bless us with your special presence, and to help us always when we gather together as a church to know that you are here, that you're in our midst. Worship is for you. We pray that you would be pleased with everything that we do, everything we say, with our preaching, our singing, and with our thoughts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you today a little bit about some of the foundations of Paul's apostolic authority because that is really the context of what we have here in front of us, the foundations of Paul's apostolic authority because the Apostle Paul is really under attack. His ministry is being assaulted by false teachers who are going into the church and trying to undermine his authority. And so, He's going to come back now, right, with weapons of, spiritual, of a spiritual nature. Those weapons he's already talked about. And so with this, 
he is going to give us some of the foundational principles of what made him such an outstanding shepherd, such an outstanding apostle. And uh, let me begin briefly just by saying that the idea of a pastor, it's an interesting concept, isn't it? God raising up men to lead his church, gifting them, enabling them, empowering them, calling them, making them adequate for the ministry, and then installing them over his sheep and the flock of his pasture to guide, to lead, to shepherd, to feed, to tend, and to protect. Now, we know what a pastor is because we're Christians. We're New Covenant Christians. But let me just say that the idea of pastoring has its foundations far before the New Testament. If you would, Jeremiah is sort of a test case of this. And so I want to kind of answer the question of where does the concept of a pastor in the New Covenant way, where does Paul come from after all? Is this something that God just sort of thought up? He said, oh no, now we have a New Covenant community of God's people. Now what? Well, let's just pick some people to lead them and we'll call them pastors. No, that's not what happened at all. Like the New, the new Covenant people of God, the pastor is just as much prophesied in the Old Testament. The pastor is just as much rooted in the, 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 the plan of God for his people for long ages ago. And when you look at Jeremiah, for example, who was one of God's pastors, if you would, he was a prophet, but he certainly was one of the shepherds of Israel, just like all the others, Amos, Hosea, Joel, all of the prophets. But let me just also bring this concept out, that as far back as the theology of a shepherd and a pastor goes, there has always been two tracks. There have been those destructive shepherds that have led the people of God astray, and then there's been the faithful shepherds who have wanted to shepherd God's people faithfully and biblically and ground them in truth. Beginning with destructive shepherds, uh, Jeremiah has a lot to say about this. In the history of the children of Israel, God has always risen up leaders to lead them, whether they're prophets, whether they're priests, whether they are men of, of noble character, militarily speaking, like Joshua, whether they are weak and seemingly unqualified shepherds like Amos. God has always had men to lead His people. But there has also arisen false teachers, false prophets, false shepherds, and destructive shepherds among God's people, leading them astray. If you know anything about the history of the people of God in Israel, you know that they went astray. Over and over they went astray into Babylon, into Egypt, into Assyria. And God graciously and constantly bringing them back, delivering them from the bondage of their own, often their own sins, their own idolatry. But they also looked to their leaders, the people did. Sadly, in Jeremiah's time, the people had looked to their leaders to no avail. In vain, they looked for guidance. So that Jeremiah says in chapter 10, verse 21, all of the shepherds are stupid. <laughs> you want to talk about an indictment on a ministry. 
He says, all of the shepherds have become stupid, and they have not sought the Lord. Wow. In other words, they have not guided the people. They have not been filled with discernment. They have not discerned proper, sound doctrine. And you know that doctrine is at the very heart of it all. Because what these false, te- these false shepherds did is they led the people astray theologically into idolatry, into syncretism. Jeremiah 12.10 says, Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. This is the Lord speaking. They have trampled down my field. They have made my, my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. That's with their teaching, with their words, with their leading, with their ministry. They had turned the people of God into a desolation, a wasteland of liberalism and even more to the point, idolatry. They were whimsical. And I think if you look at Jeremiah 22, 22, or I can just read it to you, you see something here of the nature, the character of these. What are these men made out of? It doesn't look like they're made out of metal that's too tough because they were easily blown over. Listen to what Jeremiah says. The wind sweeps all the shepherds away. Wow. Easily blown over. But God had also promised the people of God, faithful shepherds, to lead his sheep. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will give you shepherds after my own heart. They will feed you the knowledge of God. They will feed you knowledge and understanding. They will equip you, in other words. Jeremiah 23, verse 4 says this, I will raise up shepherds over you and they will tend you. They will not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will there be any missing. Referring to the sheep. No sheep missing. And isn't that language that we remember, or that's reminiscent, or that we can recall? It's familiar language, right? Shepherds that will tend the sheep. You know, the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, spoke to one of his under-shepherds, Peter, and told him what? Peter tend my sheep. Peter, Paul, new covenant ministers are a fulfillment of this prophecy right here, that God was going to one day raise up faithful shepherds to lead the people of God into the way of truth, to lead the people of God faithfully. And so what we're looking at with Paul is just that one test case, one example of a faithful shepherd and who he, who, what, who he was, what he was about, what his purpose was, and what his manner of ministry was. And it begins, number one, with his identity. Who was Paul? Look at his identity in verse 7. He gives us three things. The first one is his identity, namely his identity in Christ. He says, you're looking at things that are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. And I think there, that is spoken with a tinge of irony. A tinge of irony that that for Paul, he's being attacked by those who claim to be in Christ. I think more than salvifically. 
The phrase in Christ usually refers to your salvation, that you are in Christ. But here, I think it's akin to what Paul has already talked about in chapter 5, that he spoke in Christ. In other words, they were claiming to be, uh, uh, they were claiming to be authorized by Christ, sent by Christ, commissioned by Christ. He'll go on to call, to, to, to label them or, or to call them out because they were labeling, labeling themselves servants of Christ. They were claiming to have Christ's authority in the church. And Paul begins with this word that is of great exegetical debate. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. Now, let me begin here by just kind of pulling on the brakes. There is a major theological debate or exegetical, not so much theology, but the exegesis here is really hard. That's because the word to look at can be translated in one of two ways. You can either translate it as an indicative verb, which is, that's the way the NASB has it. You are looking at things this way, versus an imperative. Blepete is a word that can go either way. Either it's a command or it's a, it's a statement. Either he's describing them or he is commanding them somehow. I take the indicative position. I think that, they, that this, is a, this is a bit of an indictment on the church, that they were looking on things, and then he uses the phrase outwardly, but the literal original says you are looking at things according to the face. Very interesting language. You are looking at things, in other words, just on the surface, just the, the appearance of the thing. You are not going beneath the, 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 the false veneer of these false teachers and their lies. And I think that's what he's saying. And then he sort of grapples with their claims. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, and that's where their confidence was. They were confident within themselves that they were Christ's. And then he goes on to say, let him consider again this within himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. The fact that he repeats within himself probably is a play on words there, signifying that they had a lot of self-pride, self-centeredness, that everything had to do with their own ingenuity. For example, how were these men trying to propagate their authority? Well, if we just take 2 Corinthians, he gives us tons of clues. He's already spoken in chapter 3 about letters of commendation, that he, that, that he, unlike they, didn't need letters of commendation. Paul didn't need man's stamp of authenticity on his ministry. He was an apostle through and through, and he says that the proof is in the pudding. Their existence, the fact that they were a church, the fact that he had given birth to them like a spiritual father in the things of the gospel, that was the proof itself. The fact that the Spirit had written the law in their hearts, that was proof enough that his ministry was legitimate. But they also claim in chapter 11, verse 15, that they were righteous. I think with that word, servants of righteousness, that is probably an allusion to the law that they were keeping the law, and this, this is probably some correlation with Galatians chapter 2, verses 16 and following, and the idea that you could be justified by the works of the law. And so they were probably asserting their legalistic bent. And then they were also asserting their zeal. They were claiming to be Christ's servants. 
They were claiming to be in his service. And Paul says, I speak as if I'm out of my mind here. These men are servants of Christ? Let me tell you what a servant of Christ looks like. And then he goes on to list all of his sufferings, all of the things that he endured in the gospel, in the service of Christ, and it looks very little like ministry looks today, at least in America. And then he says, are they Hebrews? Pointing to the fact that they were probably asserting their ethnicity at the same time. And so by these external things, these false shepherds, false brethren, false apostles, false teachers, all of those labels that come in chapter 11, they were trying to sort of sway the church to vie for their allegiance, to vie for their affections, trying to persuade them away from Paul and to themselves. And as Paul's already taught them, moving away from Paul is to move away from the gospel. And so he wants to make sure they stay there. Paul says, by contrast, that he himself was also in Christ. I think that it is beautiful to be in Christ, isn't it? To be identified in Christ, to have your identity swallowed up in the person of Christ. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. I pray that Galatians 2 would always be like a banner over all of our lives, that we could wear it proudly as a pledge of honor, that Jesus now is our distinctive identity, that He now distinguishes us, that we have the scent of Christ all over us, and that we are not ashamed of His Word. It says in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. You want to be identified with Christ? It begins by dying. Dying with Him. Being crucified with Him. Putting to death the old man in His ways. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is in this body, in this corporeal existence on planet earth, I live by faith in the Son of God. So that when you're alive in your car on your way to work, you're in Christ, you're in the Son of God. So that when you're in the flesh, not, not pejoratively, not in that connotation, but when you're in your body at work and you're just in the mundane, you are in Christ. You are in His Son you're in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. This is our all. Christ is our all. He is everything for us. If we would have anything to do with Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2, which, my friends, listen, i got good news for you. This is not just a description of some elite group of apostles. This is for every believer in this place. This is for every believer for all time. This is for us. His identity is for us to cherish, to savor. And so we move on from his identity to his purpose. And his purpose is contained in a parenthetical statement here in verse 8. He says, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. If a true shepherd must be one that, he, that has his identity in Christ, his purpose has to be one that he is designed to strengthen and to edify and to build up the church of Christ. The opponents claimed 
to be in Christ, claiming his authority, claiming that they belonged to his church. And Paul says that his purpose in the church, unlike theirs, was not to destroy them, but to build them up. You remember it was a description of Jeremiah of the false shepherds that they, they led the people of God to destruction. They created a desolation. But as Paul uses these words, not to destroy you, but to build you up. Or to build you up, but not destroy you. And the word there is going to be translated later in uh, chapter 13 as tear down, which is good because it's just a little bit closer to what you find, for example, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8 says, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Well, who is Paul building up? He is building up God's society, God's nation, God's kingdom, God's people, God's church. That's who he's building up. And that was his purpose. His purpose was to edify the church, to strengthen the church. And that's what he's doing. Look at chapter, uh, chapter, chapter 11, verse 3, just as an example of this. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. It's literally just simplicity and purity of Christ. It's pure devotion. And that's what Paul is trying to secure in the church. A church that is focused above all in their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Their devotion. Their concentration is Christ. Their attention span is for Christ. Their entertainment is for Christ. Their, their, their whole purpose in life is Christ. Is that your purpose? Is that mine? Christ, more of Him, less of the world, more of Christ, less devotion to lesser things, more devotion to Jesus Christ. I promise you, in eternity, you will never regret it. He builds up their, their, their devotion to Christ. If you look back to chapter 10, verse 15, he does this by growing the faith of the church. Look at this. He says in verse 14, we are not overextending ourselves as we did not reach to you, for we were first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will, we will be within our sphere. So in other words, that little statement there, I'm making much of that statement. Your faith grows. Is your faith growing? How do you know you're at the right church? Is your faith growing? How do you know you're surrounding yourself with the right people? Is your faith growing? Or are you being dragged down as bad company, even in the church, can corrupt good morals? Bad company, even Christian company, sometimes can hinder you from running the race with endurance. I tell you what, I hope you have a close circle of friends, and I hope there are those that are running hard after God that are going to cause your faith to grow, to excel, to be all that it can be. 
That is the divine purpose for our lives, brothers and sisters, that we could grow as high as we possibly can this side of heaven so that when we get there, we can have more of the same. So that when we get there, we can have an enlarged capacity to enjoy the things of God. John Piper once said that in order for us to enjoy what God did in the gospel, we should study missions. How are you going to praise God for what he did missiologically throughout planet earth if you don't know any missionaries? If you've not studied the biographies of, you know, whoever, William Carey, Adoniram Judson, John Patton, pick your missionaries and study them. See what God has done. This will have an eternal ramification, I believe, for our lives. He also grew the church and edified the church, obviously, by imparting knowledge. Look at chapter 11, verse uh, 6, because this is so different than pastoral ministry today. (laughs) I think Paul would not recognize 90% of the type of pastoral ministry in the world today. I think he would just be, you know, mystified at what is going on in the church. Listen to what he says here. Beginning in verse 5, he says, For I consider myself not at least inferior to most eminent apostles, but even if I am unskilled in speech. Talk about looking at things outwardly, there you go. He didn't have the most eloquent speech. Yet, I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. In other words, there was a theological depth to the Apostle Paul. It wasn't this surface-level, fluffy, cotton-candy Christianity. It was deep and profound and disturbing and apocalyptic and troubling and unsettling. But it was so good. It was so good. Isn't it true, brothers and sisters, that we grow sometimes the most in our hardest times? We often don't see a whole lot of growth when we're on easy street in our sanctification. And sometimes God has to challenge us in order to grow us. I remember sitting down, a brother, not my brother, but a brother, yeah, him too, you can ask him, but I remember sitting down, another brother, and explaining to him for the first time the doctrines of the sovereignty of God, you know, the type of thing, you know, I'd get in trouble for it, some other churches, and I explained to him the the panoply of God's sovereign grace, which to me is a point of worship, not a point of controversy. Sure, they're controversial, but they're glorious too. Who cares if they're controversial? Everything that's glorious about God is controversial. Everything. When we got done walking through the doctrines of grace, he said, not even knowing that this same phrase appeared in one of Spurgeon's books I was reading, He said, I felt like I've just grown from a boy to a man. Growth! Why? Because I took him to a concert? No, because I unfolded the mysteries of the mind of God. And he knew that he was growing. I love that. I want more of that. I have too little of it in my life. Wouldn't you concur? I hope I'm not alone. 
have too little of that in my life. I want to know that I can perceive that last year I grew in the faith, that I didn't stay the same, but that I have a trajectory. Sanctification is progressive, and it's on an incline. You should go up. There are peaks and valleys, but you should be going up in your walk with Christ. Not only did Paul have this purpose, therefore, to edify and to strengthen the church, but he also had, in terms of his personal character, a consistency in the ministry that was indomitable. Look at verses 9 through 11. I don't wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. This preaches itself, right? In other words, you got the same Paul when he wrote as the same Paul when he visited, when he came he had, a, he had a character consistency about him. They could expect the same Paul that spoke of all of these lofty things in theology when he came to their doorstep, the doorsteps of their church. That he was a man of holiness. He was a man of character. He was a man of integrity. And we know this. And that's why he wrote. Notice he qualifies one more time his manner of ministry. This integrous pastor was also gentle. Let me read to you the end here of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10, because this kind of sweeps it all together. He says, For this reason I'm writing these things while absent, so that when, I, when present I need not use severity in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me, again, for building you up, and not for tearing you down. Case in point, you want to know if you're going to get the same Paul when he's present with you, he says it right here. He's wanting the Corinthians to make things right, to get things in order before he comes, so that when he comes, the things that he has threatened in his letters, he will not have to fulfill. His heart is not to discipline the church. His heart is to develop the church's joy. His heart is to produce joy, not grief. He doesn't have a ministry of death. He has a ministry of life. He wants to inject life into the church. But listen, that will be very difficult in Corinth if the church doesn't side with Paul. If the church is divided and there are those, there's factions in the church which we know from 1 Corinthians, that this church has a propensity to be factionalistic, to be cliquish, to say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Christ. They, they are easily persuaded that way, tempted that way. And so Paul is saying, no, before he gets there, he wants them to be lined up. He wants them to be lined up against these false teachers. Look at the description, or the attack, we could say, on Paul's character. It's sort of a threefold strategy that they have. They say his letters are weighty and strong. In other words, that's not, that almost sounds like a 
like a compliment. It's not because of what follows. But his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Unimpressive, which the word literally means weak. So that when he comes, he's weak. It's like, this is Paul? I think if Paul walked in here today, we'd be like, this is him? Wow, I was expecting, you know, whoever. <laughs> I was expecting something more impressive than that. I mean, look at the guy. You know what I mean? I don't know that we would really, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that Paul could really uh, be on the cover of any, you know, pastoral magazines. His body, after all, was probably filled with scars. You get beaten with rods five times. You get stoned. You get whipped on your back hundreds of times. And let's see what you look like when you're done. Now, Paul was probably a beat-down, hurting, aching man who looked like he had literally been through hell. And you know what? Ministerially, he did. And he did it with joy, and he did it for the glory of God. And today, the Apostle Paul is so glad that he did, that he didn't run from the whip, that he didn't run from the stones, that he didn't run from the the rods, the blows, the imprisonments, and ultimately martyrdom itself. We have so much to learn from Paul. That's why it takes a lifetime, you know, a lifetime to study these things. Um, I just threw myself completely off here. Sorry, I, I got caught up. He's not just weak in terms of his presence. His presence is not that impressive he doesn't look like a Christian celebrity, maybe. And his speech is contemptible. Now, that's very important for Corinthians. Why? Because in Corinth, rhetorical skill was everything. The philosophers in Corinth in this day would go and they would stand on the corners of the street and they would give you know, their oratory sermonettes or whatever they would give their, their philosophies, and they would try to be as eloquent and as fanciful, almost poetic, to gain a following and to gain an audience. You know, I don't know that Paul was that great of a preacher. I don't know that we would have listened to Paul compared to, let's say, you know, somebody that we maybe like today and that we appreciate, you know, the ministry today for being eloquent. I think of Ravi Zacharias. Have you guys heard of Ravi Zacharias? That guy, his... That dude excels in eloquence. I don't know that Paul would have been that eloquent. It says his speech is contemptible. It literally means it is of no regard. It means we, we, we hardly even take it into account. It's so bad. Man, God loves to be glorified in weakness. He loves to use weak and feeble people. He loves to use churches that are struggling financially and use them mightily for the gospel. He loves to use churches that are just, you know, going through all sorts of terrible sufferings, persecutions. He loves to use ministers like this minister I was, I was listening about, and we were watching a video about missionaries in Colombia. This minister that was, you know, he, he wasn't a seminarian but he was so devoted to Christ, he was preaching in the jungles to the cartels. 
And the cartels and the drug traffickers, the guerrillas, they, they hated him so bad. They, they, they corralled him into a corner. And he, they, they trapped him in an in in intersection of a corner and they butchered him because they hated his ministry. But he was motivated by just this indomitable love for souls. He didn't have a PhD. He had a passion for the glory of God and he was willing, he was willing to seal it with his blood. Paul was the same, the same in his letters, the same when present. It didn't matter whether he's writing or whether he's preaching in front of you, you get the same Paul. That's why I say he is such a great example of an integrous minister. Turn with me back to chapter 2 quickly, just to see this even in Paul. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 12. You remember this phrase that I made so much about, but this really is the substance of Paul's character here. He says, the proud confidence, our proud confidence is this, a big church. No. Our proud confidence is this, that we have an incredible worship ministry. No. Our proud confidence is this, that, you know, we, we, you know, we, we get to fellowship with all the, you know, celebrities in Christianity. No. His proud confidence is this, the testimony of his conscience. His conscience is not fractured, it is solid. He says in Acts chapter 23, I walked in the world with a perfectly clear conscience. That's incredible. He says that in holiness and in godly sincerity, not in carnal wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in two places, in the world and especially toward you. In other words, we're the same guy when we're in the world that we are here. The same person at work that you are in the church. Same person in the family that you are here. Same person in the neighborhood that you are here. That's who Paul was. And it's convicting. Yeah, this is one of those sermons where I agree with R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul was driving home after a sermon. He noticed his wife was just real angry at him. Like, what? Why are you angry? He said, because you don't you don't, you know, you don't practice what you preach. You're preaching these incredible sermons about integrity and you, you know this, and you don't live up to that. Well, let me tell you, my friends, I don't live up to it either. I have my faults, my sins, my failures, okay? But I'm praying and I'm striving and I'm hoping to be this man. All the days of my life, may I conform more and more into Christ's likeness like Paul did. R.C. Sproul went on to say, if you only preach as high as the things that you obtain or you attain to, you're preaching too low. You must preach perfection because that is what God has given us to preach. You must be excellent. Peter says you must be holy just as the Father is holy. And you may say, well, let's just throw in the towel now. But that is the standard, and he can give us no standard less than what is perfection, because that is who he is. Let me bring up this last point. It keeps reemerging extemporaneously as I'm preaching. So let me just bring up this last verse. Turn with me in closing, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Because for Paul, he didn't care that people derided him in this way. Paul was gladly content with his weaknesses. That's what he says. I, I gladly boast in my weakness because he understood that in his suffering, 
that there was an analogy between the sufferings of Christ. So for Paul to suffer for the gospel and to suffer for the glory of God and on behalf of his people was to be like Christ. And he was happy with the analogy. Look at verse 2 to 4. He says, I've previously said when present and, and the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well. See, he's addressing his opponents right here. That if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Anyone. So he's ready to issue out church discipline if that's what it takes. Like Hemenaeus and Alexander, he's ready to surrender them over to Satan that their souls might be saved. If that's what it takes. Since you are seeking proof of Christ who speaks in me and who is not weak toward you but mighty in you. For, indeed, he was crucified because of weakness. That's not his weakness. That's our weakness. He was crucified because as Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says, we were at one point helpless. Yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him. Present statement. This is the present condition of the Apostle Paul. We are weak in him. That means we suffer that with him. That means Colossians 1.24, we are filling up in our body the sufferings of Christ, the afflictions that are lacking in Christ. And that doesn't mean that Christ's suffering or Christ's atonement was deficient in any way. It just means more sufferings are appointed for the body of Jesus Christ composed of his church that Paul himself is filling up. That's why Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, suffer with me. You want to be in ministry? Ministry is about suffering. Ministry is about enduring hardship. Ministry is about losing sleep. Ministry is about getting ulcers. Ministry is about losing friends. Ministry is about being betrayed. Ministry is about having people go apostate on you. Ministry is filled with losses, apparent losses. Ministry is just hard. And that's why Paul describes it in soldier language, battle metaphor. He is, he is in a war in ministry. And so many people today, they're just fighting and fighting and fighting for what? To turn ministry into Disneyland. They want to turn the church into just a, a, a circus, literally. I mean, I've heard of past, pastors swinging from the rafters and bringing up Harleys and, you know, what's next, man? You're going to bring in the elephants and, you know, Bailey Circus and all that? Well, probably, I don't want to give them any ideas, but you understand the deficiency of, to, of the American modern church today? It is profound. It's breathtaking. So many churches have gone astray in so many areas but this is the nature of true ministry. Paul didn't have all the rhetorical skills. He wasn't the most polished person. But you know what? Paul was, was, was the purpose that Paul served in the church was to encourage the church, to strengthen the church, to build it up. That was his purpose. And then, last of all, he was a man of integrity for the church. He was one of those faithful shepherds, a true shepherd that would lead the sheep into truth and rest. That's Ezekiel 34, 15. But let me just say this. Let me just apply this to all of us. He said, well, I'm not a pastor, so a lot of this doesn't apply to me. No, my dear friends, it does. 
Because I can look at every virtue that Paul has picked out here for his pastoral ministry, and I can see every virtue in other places of Scripture that have to do with every single one of us. Every single one of you, like Paul, should have a desire to be identified with Jesus Christ. Your identity is, is swallowed up in the person of Christ. Like the Apostle Paul, we have all been given this stewardship of the church. How are you building up the church? How are you encouraging the church? How are you serving the church? Who are you serving in the church? You say, well, I'm not doing much in the church because there's not much to do. Really? Next time when you have people over for dinner, ask them what they're going through. Ask them, can I pray for you for an hour? You'll feel like you've labored. Trust me. If you pray over one soul for one hour, you will feel as if you have labored in the things of the gospel because prayer doesn't come easy. That's why we do so little of it. It's just a lot easier to do a lot of other things. And like the Apostle Paul, we have all been called to faithfulness. Paul was a faithful shepherd, and you, God, calls you to be a faithful sheep. You say, how do I do that? You go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, and you ask God, what am I doing? What do I do? I'm a joint that supplies something to the body. What am I supplying? What role? Because the Bible says every part doing its part. You know, every, every joint, every member doing his part, he has it, you have your role. And so we can ask these hard questions of ourselves, but I promise you that if you engage in, in, in these things, that you engage in serving in the local church, your life will flourish, your life will expand with ministry. God will give you opportunity beyond your wildest dreams. You just have to be willing to be hurt. You just got to be willing to be vulnerable. You just got to be willing to be used. You just got to be willing to put in the time and the work. And God will do all the rest, all for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, um, such a great example in Paul. One that we can all strive for and aim for. And I pray, please work in us to do that. Help us not to be satisfied. Help us not to be complacent in where we're at, but to strive even harder to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, knowing you are working in us for your pleasure, for your glory. Father, I pray that in our church you would always protect our church and that you would give us the proper view of the pastoral ministry, not just for executing the, the office of a pastor, but also to have a proper prophetic perspective of the ministry, knowing that Shepherds are given as, re as a result of your prophetic word. Pastors are there for your purpose in the church. And God, I pray that you would make us a people submissive to authority, appreciative for our pastors, reverent towards our leaders. And God, help us as leaders in our church. I pray for myself and Alan. I pray for the deacons as well. I pray for everyone in leading positions or leading situations of the future that you would always help us to be dominated first and foremost with the highest level of integrity that we, that, that we can by grace attain to and a greatest concern for your church that we can muster and a, a, a joyful identity in Jesus Christ 
knowing and understanding that all that we need is found in Him. He is our rest. He is our life. The life that we now live, let it be more of Him and less of us. Lord, we thank You. I pray a blessing over Your people today. I pray, Father, that You would bless every home, that You would bless every marriage, that You would bless the children of our church, that You would save them and redeem them at the youngest possible age, that You would bring them to love You more, to see You exactly as we sung, to see You as that truly lovely source of all true delight. You're worthy of it, Lord. We pray that you would conform us more and more into that that purpose and that image and that will. In Jesus' name, amen.